And that we say new, what does it mean? my wife, Kathy. That the old has passed away. Right? What did Paul say? Not looking backwards, but looking forward. Pressing forward unto the prize, the mark of the high calling, which is what? Immortality in our physical bodies. Right? That's what our eyes and our gaze is fixed upon in this new year. So even when we say new year, we don't want to just think of a new year in the worldly sense. We want to think of new in the sense that the old man is dead. The old man is passed away. In that we say there's a new man, what we're saying is that the old man passed away. The old man went into the grave, didn't come back out of the grave. And the old man is the man that was clothed in death. The body of death. That's the old man. And so when we say there's a new man, when we say there's a new creation, when we say that we've been clothed in the new man, what we're saying is we've been clothed in the sinless life of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Who was raised up from the grave, free from death in his body, never to be able to die again. Amen. And so when you think of the new year, likewise, reckon yourselves also to have died with him unto the power of sin's ability to serve you with death. Yes. And that you've been raised up with him free from death, free from sin, never to be able to be touched or corrupted by sin or death again. That's walking in the newness of life, right? We didn't have life before. That caused us to walk in a certain way. We didn't walk in the good work of God to serve us with life, but rather we were walking in our own works, trying to serve ourselves with life by our own works. Walking in the newness of life is that you see God has done a work to serve you with life, that by the power of his hand, he has perfected you once for all time from death, and he has raised you up unto his indestructible life. He is everlasting father. He has fathered everlasting life in you. That will cause you to walk in a new kind of a way. Right? Right. I'll take that. Hallelujah. So what do you guys want to talk about? Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else to talk yeah, about? <laughs> I mean, that, that, that really encompasses it all. Yeah, and, it does. and you could spend eternity unwrapping yeah. all of that sure. in the glory of the Lord. Yes. You know, the power of the gospel is not found in beholding your own glory. Mm-mm. That doesn't mean there's nothing glorious about you. The power of the gospel is found in beholding the glory of the Lord. Yeah. Right? And as you behold the glory of the Lord, what happens is, is you see in his face the love he feels for you. Mm-hmm. And that love that you see in his face for you, when you behold his glory, when he raised up Jesus from the dead as your representative, and you could see his love for you, like Jesus said, I pray, Father, that they know that you love them the same way that you love me. When you see the glory in the Lord, the glory in his face, the love he has for you in his heart, in that he saved you from death and braided you together with himself in his eternal life and sat you down next to him at his right hand in the person of Jesus Christ inside of the Godhead, what will happen is is you'll feel validated. You'll feel affirmed. You'll feel valuable. Because you'll see the God of all glory, man. You'll see that his face shines in adoration of you. Hallelujah. And now you're not trying to believe you're good by looking at yourself to determine that you're good by what you see in yourself, but you're beholding the glory of God and you see that in God's face, this guy has said, it is very good when he looks at you. It's so good that I won't allow it to pass away. I won't allow it to perish. Right? Part of the gospel has gotten a little bit corrupted in, in this modern sense 
that we think the power of God or the power to see the life of God manifest in us is in us beholding our own divinity. The divine is in me. The divine is in me. But that's not the power unto salvation. Right? The power unto salvation is beholding God. Right? That's the power of salvation. Now, in beholding God and seeing that he come to place his name behind your name, It'll cause something to happen inside of you. You'll see if this guy come and wrote his name on my birth certificate, that means he's come to be my father. Yes, exactly. And if he's come to be my father and he's come to swaddle me from the blood of death and swaddle me in the light of his life, this guy, I'm his son. And then your heart cries out, Abba, right? And then you're caught up into the divine, mm. right? Mm. You're not divine all by yourself. No. Glory to God. <laughs> you know, I, I wish we didn't have to make that distinction, but there, there's so much confusion in the earth, people walking around thinking if we would just wake up to our own divinity, we could be saved. Mm -hmm. yeah. You ain't God. <clears throat> Neither is dust created with divinity. No. Dust is created in the image of God, and if that dust that is in the image of God can see that God is with them to be the father of their life, and that dust can see that I'm the child of God, and that dust can call upon the name of the Lord by crying out, Abba, then divinity, eternal life, can dwell in that dust. And that dust can be over, can transcend just an earthy existence and can transcend into a heavenly existence. Right? Yes. Adam returned to the dust of the ground. Guess what? Divinity don't return to the dust of the ground. Right. And so he was missing something, right? Sure, he was in the image of God. Sure, God knew he was his father, but Adam thought he was going to father his own life. Adam thought, I'm going to look at my own strength. I'm going to put my strength to the grind, and by my strength, I'm going to decorate myself in life. I will be my own father. That's what Adam thought. And if any human thinks that, they're also going to return to the dust of the ground. Right? Right? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes, we're talking about that on the way over here. <laughs> we have that thing going on. <laughs> we do. It seems like every time there's a topic. Uh, Jim Dixon isn't here, but we were in a small men's group on Tuesday, and a fellow was uh, he gave us this little three-part test about how whether you tell something is true. Hmm. Of course, we have the spirit for that, right? <laughs> the spirit tells you what's true. The spirit doesn't run your head through a three-part test. But anyway, he had three-part test. <laughs> And the first part was, uh, it, 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 it violates scripture. Okay. So then later he was reading this blog that he had authored. And uh, I said, well, if you apply your three-part test to that, it's not true. And he said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you just said that Adam was created of eternal life before the fall. I said, that if that's true, then how'd he die? Yeah. So uh, he didn't like that. <laughs> we were talking about that in the same way yeah, that dust isn't created with divinity right dust can receive divinity yeah it can, As be, a gift, it, it can right. be made in union with it that's, that's right that's right yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about something this morning about uh, you know people want to feel like they have a purpose in life and that there's meaning to their life and when you when you think about that You are immediately placing yourself in the world with such a thing. Because you're thinking, if I have a purpose in his life, then I can be meaning it can be meaningful to me. It'll speak a word to me that says, I have meaning, purpose, and value, all those things. 
But when he, he is meaning, he is purpose. And when you are the possessor of that life, it is just in you that, in other words, your life is meaning, it is purpose. And your existence, no matter what you're doing in this life, whether you have some kind of ministry or don't have a ministry, or you do this or you do that or you're here or there, no matter where you are, your life has meaning and has purpose because meaning and purpose dwells in you. Yeah. Yeah, the desire for that is satisfied. It, the, that desire yeah. for that is satisfied. And, and then in that, somehow or another, your life shines. Your life can shine in that. Because the Lord will exalt you. Yes. Right? The Lord will exalt you unto the fruit of the Spirit. And when, and when people in this world behold love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, it stands out to them, right? Because there's something in their heart that they, they long for that because they know that's a righteous life. They know that it's right to be filled with love and joy and peace and kindness. And if they see someone who's actually filled in those things, then their life shines like a light, right? Um, what you just said, the, the verse that contains everything you just said is whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord, right? And it's not saying to do it as if you're working for the Lord. It's saying whatever it is you do, do knowing that you possess the Lord already, right? You possess the Lord God himself inside of you. And so whatever you do, don't do it to try and gain something for yourself or try to preserve yourself. Do it knowing, right, that you have all things that pertain to life and God likeness, right? You're not doing something to find purpose. If you're doing something to find purpose, you're dwelling in the wisdom of the world, Yes. right? And it seems wise. Right? That's why it says there's a way that seems right to man. Yep. Because that way seems wise. There's a reason why Paul says, touch not, taste not, handle not, has an appearance of wisdom. He didn't say, we can all see it's just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> he said, touch not, taste not, handle not, appears wise. Yes. But he says, it's of no power unto the satisfying of the flesh. Mm-hmm. Right? To Maurice's point, man, if you need purpose... If you're looking for purpose, you're not going to find the fulfillment of that in anything you can do in the world. Mm -hmm. You're only going to find that in receiving eternal life. Because do you know what the purpose for your life is in this world? That you can receive eternal life. Exactly. That you can have eternal life. I mean, what did John say about why Jesus came? To explain the Father. To explain the Father. That's one way of saying it. Did John say that God so loved the world that he sent his son to tell people about how they could find their purpose in the world? No. He said, God so loved the world that he sent his son that all those who believe on him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the purpose. That's your purpose. Your purpose is to receive everlasting life. Your purpose is to become as a little child and realize that you're not here to care for your own life, that you can't decorate yourself in the fruit of the Spirit, that you can't satisfy your own desires. You can't do any of that. Neither can the world. And when you live as a little child, what happens is, is you don't think you can do those things, but you look to someone else to do it for you and you begin looking to the Father. Right? That's... The purpose. How many, how many of us have read The Purpose Driven Life? Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. I was just thinking, I never finished it. <laughs> Which is kind of ironic because you can never finish you can never finish trying to find purpose for your life. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. in the world. Mm-hmm. 
A purpose-driven life is your fleshly attempt to justify your own life rather than right. resting in the fact that God has justified Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. I was listening to something this morning. A guy gave an example of somebody standing outside of a forest area and shooting arrows into it. And then what he would do is he'd go find the arrows where it hit the tree or whatever and paint a target in there. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what purpose driven. It's like, you know, you, you go, you're, you're totally, there ain't no mark that you're really trying to hit. <laughs> right. You justify your life by there. I hit it. You, you, what's interesting is you don't ever see Paul use those terms. You don't see any of the apostles use those terms. Mm -hmm. Right, we've adopted so many teachings that you can't find uh, unpacked in the apostolic letters that it boggles my mind. Mm -hmm. How we can't even just as a reference point tell someone, show me where Paul said that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That way, and see what happens is, is the carnal mind can see the life of God looks a certain way, right? And then because they can observe that the life of God looks this way, the <laughs> carnal mind not knowing the power of God and the grace of God to give birth to his strength inside of a person, the carnal mind will start seeing that they're going to bring forth this animation of grace. And then you start writing things like the purpose-driven life because you don't understand how it's the grace of God that animates you, right? But Paul did talk about laboring more abundantly than them all. But he didn't say anything about what's unpacked in the purpose-driven life. Do you know what he said? He said, yet not I. Mm -hmm. It's not I that's doing the laboring. It's Christ in me. It's the grace of God laboring in me. He said, I'm crucified with Christ. I'm dead to the world and the world to me. I'm dead to the life I can gain by my own strength. My own strength, my own ability, the power that's in this world is no longer the strength behind my life. It's Christ who is living in me. Now, if it's Christ producing in you and not you producing in yourself, then who is it that has the credit for the fruit that's born in your life? Wow. How am I going to take credit for any good thing that comes out of my life or my ministry if it's Christ who liveth in me? Is it the fruit of the Spirit or is it the fruit of Greg Henry? The Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Do you know what that means? It's the Spirit that produced it. So now I'm going to show up at the door of the Spirit and knock on the door and tell him, look what I've done. The Spirit's going to be like, listen, bro, I like you, but you're confused. Yeah. And I tell you this so that you don't find yourself decorated in the fruit of death. Right. It's not by power of your hand or strength of your might that any of this good fruit has come out of you, but by the power of my hand and the power of God Almighty. Yeah. I am the Almighty God. Right? Walk before me. Look unto me and my strength, and your life will be perfected from death. And it will be decorated in the fruit of the Spirit. Amen. Right? Walk Amen. before God. You know what it means to walk before God? It means for your eyes to be continuously fixed on the work of God. If your eyes are continuously fixed on the work of God, guess what there's no more space for? Your own work. Right. That doesn't mean you won't do anything. I could run down the long list of everything I've done this morning. All the ministering I've done this morning before any of y'all even showed up. All the messaging I did to people. All the praying I did for people. All the explanations of doctrines I did for people this morning before anybody got here. Then I was out in the parking lot picking up all the trash in the parking lot. Two big old bags. Then I'm getting everything ready for church. I don't tell you this so that you're like, wow, look what Greg did. I tell you this to explain that 
Understanding what we're talking about doesn't mean you won't do anything. We're talking about the power behind what you're doing. And who's the source of the power? It ain't you. And I promise you, I'm not going to come to the Lord and try and get the Lord to rejoice over me over all the things I did this morning. I'm not going to go home today and talk to the Lord like the Pharisee that was in Luke 18 talked to the Lord. Look at everything that I've done. You know what I'm going to do when I come home? I'm going to talk to the Lord about what he'd done to deliver me from the reign of death and to braid me together with him and his eternal life. I'm going to thank the Lord that he got it right to liberate my life from the dust of the ground and to create me a life of a heavenly substance. I'm going to thank the Lord about how it's his grace in me upholding my life, not me, Greg, upholding my life. I'm going to thank the Lord that in everything that I do, he's with me and that the fullness of the Godhead is in me, performing that which needs to be done, and not myself. Amen. Right? right? Let he who boasts, boast in the Lord. That, that's exactly what, what right. What else is there to boast in? There's nothing left to boast in except the Lord. <laughs> mm. And that's really why the, the reason the law was given. And so that everybody that boasted in their own works would shut up. <laughs> Nobody boasted in their works more than me, I promise you, man, when I was a little kid. You can ask my parents. <laughs> There's video of it. One day we'll play it for everybody. And they'll be like, oh my God, this guy's the pastor? <laughs> no one boasted in their works more than me. No one judged people by their works more than me. No one had a higher metric or standard with which people should have to live up to than me. And I had it for myself and I had it for other people. And you know what? I actually possessed some ability. And so I was able to really get close. But the Lord had to stop my mouth. And the way the Lord stopped my mouth was the Lord come and ask me, Greg, can you raise yourself up out of the grave? Can you clothe yourself in immortality, Greg? If you can't, then you can't do anything. Right? Yeah. And I, that stopped my mouth. You see, because Paul come and said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it, the beginning of boasting, if you, want, if you want to say there's a test that can analyze whether anybody can boast, and so we'll find out real quickly who can boast. The first metric with which you weigh whether or not you can boast is can you bring forth the glory of God in yourself? Whoa. And that's immortality. Because that's the mark. Yes, it is. That's why it says, let every man boast, boast in the Lord. Why? Because the Lord can bring forth his glory inside of human flesh. No one else can. Guess what? That means we all can shut up. Right? That doesn't mean not to talk about the Lord, but that just means we can look at ourselves and say, you know what? Maybe it's about the work of God. Maybe it's not about my own work. Well, then maybe it's about their work either. Yeah. Oh, man, I've been judging them by their works, and I've been judging myself by my own works, all the while never knowing the work of the Lord. Right? Yeah. I, I just happen to have this up. In John chapter 5, it says, this is Jesus, you know. I can do nothing by myself. I judge only what I hear as I hear. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I can testify of, of myself, but my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that his testimony is valid. You have seen, you have seen, uh, you have sent John, and that testimony has to testify to the truth. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Even Jesus didn't boast in his own That's right. works. You guys realize that? Jesus, the Son of Man, as the Son of Man. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Good master. Jesus is like, You're right, bro. I've done all these good things. Maybe one day, if you can do it like me, then you can be good too. Did Jesus say that? No. He says, Why callest thou me good? There's one who is good. Do you see the boast? Who is this boast in? The Father. Right? He came to show us that a human being clothed in corrupted flesh should have one boast. And it should be the Father, right? And he didn't just tell us we should boast in the Father. He gave us a reason, or he showed us something that could bring forth something in our hearts where we would boast in the Father. Because when you see a guy that can overcome death in the flesh, when you see the question answered, son of man, can these bones live? And you're all the time thinking, no, they can't live. And then all of a sudden, you see God Almighty form flesh on bones and bring flesh that can't die again out of the grave. Listen, man, you'll find yourself boasting in the Lord. You'll find yourself talking about a guy that can even raise the dead. This guy can take people who've been dead in the grave for thousands of years, whose bones even turned into dust. He can take those people and still bring them out of the grave. He can reform their bones. He can give them a glorified body. You start talking about that. And you know what happens when you see that's the metric by which you weigh whether or not you can boast? Everything else that you think you can boast in becomes nothing. I'm like, this is kind of rude. Are there any kids in here? Well, I've already offended everybody in here more than once, and you guys still love me. You guys are the only ones. That, you know, you offend them I'll, I'll, yeah. I love what Birdie said because some, we were talking about the glorification of the body, immortality in the flesh, which is what God was always after. That's why Adam was naked. And he was supposed to be clothed. That's why God came and clothed Adam in the life of his lamb, the lamb skin. We were always meant to be clothed in immortality. That's why it said, let us create man in our image after our likeness. The likeness of God is immortality. God wanted us to be clothed in a body that possessed immortality that could never die. And we were talking about this. I don't know if it was on Facebook or somewhere. And somebody asked Birdie, some obscene question, right? A, like a, a worldly perspective, right? Like there was some example they gave. Well, what if someone was blown up? <laughs> I actually have a friend who was a pyrotechnician that did uh, fireworks that was blown up on the rig in New Orleans and died. And I, the guy, I think the guy come and said, what if someone's blown into smithereens? Blown into a thousand pieces. <laughs> Birdie, man, he, he cracks me up. He says, listen, man. Even should someone be eaten by a shark and be farted out into the ocean, God can gather their pieces and reform them and raise them under glorified immortal. I'm so sorry, but again, let him who boasts, let them boast in the Lord. Right. Right? That's the boast. And there's a reason why. Right? And that's not to say we won't do anything. Right? As we make our boast in the Lord, what happens is our eyes become fixed on the strength of God. And what happens when our eyes become fixed on the strength of God is that strength becomes born in us. Mm-hmm. He is Father. Right? And He gives birth to that strength in us. And then that strength can labor in us. Not I, but the grace of God. Right? It's not me doing it. 
It's God who dwelleth in me. It's him doing the work. Right? It's like this. It's like, uh, let's say you had a choice. <clears throat> Whatever circumstances you could dream up that you think would be best for you, that's choice A. And choice B would be the power to have joy in any circumstances. Mm. But you couldn't dictate what they might be. Mm. Which one would you pick? B. Well, it took a long time, but I would pick B. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people would say, well, I, I, I'd go with the lottery. I, I, I'd go with that. I'd get take, take, take one billion, you know. But if you have the power to have joy, regardless of the circumstances, like in your concentration camp, that's that's a uh, that's an unworldly power. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's supernatural. Yeah, yeah, but it 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 takes the mind of the spirit to even see that because so for so long in my own life, it, it's a strange thing. It's like you don't even possess the ability to reason about that properly. Like you're so fixated on you need this to have joy that you you almost don't even hear I, the other part. I was a little boy with my first pet. It was a calico cat talking to my mother when she lived in the wash shed. If y'all from around here, you know what a wash shed is. With a washer and dryer outside in the shed. And uh, I had planted an avocado tree. And I said, Mom, I said, if uh, if that avocado tree grows avocados, do you think I can sell them for like a dollar a piece? She said, well, maybe. I said, I'm not sure which one I would want more, this cat or the avocado tree. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as a little kid, that's what I, I mean. I loved my cat. I was like, oh, a dollar a piece. <laughs> but that's the carnal mind of a little kid. That's exactly. And this is completely unrelated, but aren't you Calico on one of your social media? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's yeah. a little different than Calico, but it's yeah. almost the same thing. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I my brain wanders. But the point is that the. Uh, the uninformed mind can't make the right choice. No, no, yeah. The uninformed mind can't make the right choice because it's like Paul said: the carnal mind can't comprehend God. It doesn't see God, so it, it doesn't even possess the ability to reason properly. The carnal mind couldn't read what was written in the law accurately, and so the word that was in the law was made flesh, so that a people who were carnal, sold under sin could behold the word that the law was talking about inside the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was God will provide himself a lamb to remove the reign of sin and the reign of death over you, and he will raise your life up from the grave and hide your life in himself. That's the word that was always in the law. But when they read the law and saw the works of the law, they read like the Feast of First Fruits, and they thought the Feast of First Fruits was talking about what they're going to offer to God. But Paul later come and said, Christ is our first fruit. And so the Feast of First Fruit was all about the power of God to raise a person from the dead. And in him raising that person from the dead, that person would be the firstborn from the dead, the first one of the harvest. And then that would give all the other people a certainty that they would also be raised from the dead. That's what the Feast of First Fruits in the law talked about. We were carnal, sold under sin. We couldn't comprehend God in that example. We thought the point was what we're going to do for God so that God will bless us, right? right? Mm-hmm. We couldn't see it. And so the word that was there was made flesh in the Lord Jesus. Yeah, and now we could see in the Lord Jesus that the Feast of First Fruits wasn't talking about what we're going to give to God so we can have a harvest. It was talking about what God himself would do so that he could have a harvest, which would be many children who were born again from the dead. Right? right? That's why right. if you want the best translation of the word of God, it's Jesus. That's right. That's right. It's Jesus. That's right. And that's what you're supposed to weigh it against. 
That's what you're supposed to weigh the scriptures with. This upsets people. Our intellects, they're not smart enough to figure out what the scripture says. I'm sorry. It's a fact. And the thing that ails the body of Christ the most is a bunch of people, mostly dudes, no offense, dudes, and I'm not like trying to disparage dudes, mostly dudes, that think they can understand the scriptures with their intellect. Yes. And they never weigh what they think about what's written in the scriptures against what was revealed in the Lord Jesus. And so they come out with the complete wrong interpretation because they don't weigh up against what they think with the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And you, you see a perfect example of this all the time. The Pharisees read the Sabbath, and what did they think the Sabbath said? Don't do anything. Don't do anything. And they thought, you serve the Sabbath. Right. Instead of the Sabbath being for you. What was Jesus doing on the Sabbath? Healing the sick and raising the dead. Healing the sick, raising the dead. And what were his disciples doing on the Sabbath? Healing the sick, raising Picking the dead. corn out of the yeah, field. Right. Oh, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, in the Pharisees' world, that... God demanded that they be put to death. And what did Jesus say about the Sabbath when they came and asked him about it? I love what he says. Well, when I read the Sabbath, I see that the Sabbath is about the Father does work. It's about the work of the Father to provide life to his children. You see the difference there? We can read the Sabbath when our intellect, we could think we're very smart, and you know what we'll think? Well, let's pinpoint when the Sabbath really was. Okay, in Hebrew, in Jewish mind, it was from 6 o'clock Friday night to 6 o'clock Saturday night. That was the Sabbath. We got to not work during that time. And not only do we got not to work there in that time, we can't have church on Sunday no more. If we want to observe the Sabbath, we need to have church either Friday or Saturday evening. 6 to 6, it's got to be somewhere up in there so we can observe the Sabbath. It takes a really smart person to figure all that stuff out, Right? And all your intellect, all your reasonings are dumb because you weigh all those thoughts next to the Lord Jesus and you see that ain't got nothing to do with what the Sabbath is about, right? The Sabbath, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Man is not serving the Sabbath. The Sabbath is God serving man with rest by showing man that the Father doth work. That's what the Sabbath is about. The, 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 the wisdoms that are the foundation will dictate the conclusion. Yeah. Absolutely. The wisdom of Satan says, work for life, therefore abstain during this time frame, which is in a sense a work. Yeah. And the wisdom of God says, uh, you're intended to be, be the recipient of everything I have to give you. Yeah. I want to hear a, kind of an interesting thing as we're talking. You know Lazarus, the one that Jesus raised from the dead? Do y'all know what he said in the scriptures? What Lazarus said? Lazarus. You know what he said? Nothing. I, I, I don't believe. I don't believe there's a word that Lazarus said. I, I mean, we, I might have to go back and look, but I don't recall Lazarus saying one word. But listen to this. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, and they came not because of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus too. For on account of him, many of the Jews deserted them and believed in Jesus. But Lazarus never said one word in the scriptures that I can remember, and I don't believe it's there. Where are you reading from? That is uh, John chapter 12, verse nine. Isn't, isn't that a crazy thought? It's because of his resurrection from the dead that 
the people believed. Yeah. Well, I mean, only God can forgive sin. Yeah. The, the, all those people knew that. <laughs> only God can forgive sin. And when you think about the forgiveness of sin from that phrase, you know, that's in the Bible. Only God can forgive sin. That's right. The Pharisees said it. Now think of it this term, because we think of forgiveness as someone being angry and then not being angry anymore. Only God can first be angry and then not be angry anymore. Does that make any sense? No. God who never changes. Right. That's not what the forgiveness of sin is. Only God can forgive sin. The forgiveness of sin, sin is a noun. It's a wisdom. It's iniquity. It's for, it says iniquity was found in Lucifer's heart. His heart was lifted up in himself. He said, by my own strength, by the beauty of my own branches... I will exalt myself unto life. That's why I began trashing the whole idea that life is found in beholding your own glory. That's what Lucifer did. Lucifer was glorious. God created him. So of course he's glorious. But he beheld his own glory and thought his own glory would be the power unto being exalted. If I just awake to my own glory, then I can be exalted. That's the wisdom of Lucifer. Right? And so only God can forgive sin. Sin is a wisdom. It's iniquity. It's a belief. And that belief serves you with death and destruction. So only God can forgive sin is only God can heal us from death and destruction. Well, did death and destruction come upon Lazarus? And then what did Jesus do? He sent death and destruction away from Lazarus. That was the forgiveness of sin. Well, this dude raised this guy from the dead and sent death and destruction away from him, and only God can forgive sin, then this dude has to be the son of God. And so they started following him. And then the Pharisees' mind is, well, this guy Lazarus coming out of the grave is convincing these people that he's the son of God because only God can send away death. Only God can heal us from our diseases, and this guy healed him from the disease of death. Now let's go kill Lazarus, so that will destroy the sign and the wonder, and they'll no longer follow him. And that's ultimately why they put Jesus to death. They were trying to prove that he isn't the Son of God. And if you are the Son of God, then death can't hold you. Right? And so that's that's how they sought to disperse his followers. We're going to crucify that guy on a tree. And then we're going to tell Olympolet, how can the Son of God be dying? It says, cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. How can the Son of God have a curse born in him? Right? And then you see what happens after Jesus is in the tomb for three days. He comes back out, don't he? (laughs) Only God can overcome the disease of death. Only God can forgive sin. There's God forgiving sin by healing us from the disease of death. By bringing a plague to death in the flesh. He brought a plague to the wisdom that tells you, you can work to have life. Right? Because he come and gave you life, free from your works. Right? And and Lazarus was like a testimony to what the people were actually looking for. The resurrection of the dead. That's right. We're looking for the resurrection of the dead. That guy was raised from the dead. Let's go talk to him. That's a sign. That's a sign. Absolutely. That's a sign, right? And it was meant to be a sign. It was meant to be a sign of... God with us to heal us from our diseases. God with us to forgive us of our sin. 
That doesn't mean God with us to no longer be angry with us because we did bad things. God with us to send the sin or the death that sin was serving us with away from us. That's what it meant. The forgiveness of sin is the sending away from somebody the destruction that's come upon their life because of sin. And I promise you the destruction that's come upon people's lives ain't come by the hand of God. It's come by the bite of the serpent. Right? And God with us to heal us from our diseases. Your sin is forgiven you. You see, the Jewish people had a different reference point for the word forgiveness. When they heard your sin is forgiven you, they didn't think, oh good, God's not mad no more. Do you know what they thought? God is with me, sending away this destruction that's come upon my life away from me. That's what they thought. God is here divorcing me from this destruction that's come upon my life. That's what they saw. That's how they thought of it. That's why they were healed. Right? The, the word sin, guys, in the scriptures, in all those accounts with Jesus, where Jesus said, man, your sin is forgiven you. That word sin, guess what it is? It's a noun. It's not a verb. It's a noun. You know, does everybody know what a noun is? I know most, all of us are far removed from English class. Person, place, or thing. Person, place, or thing. Or idea. Or idea. That's the they added that idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah I thought so. Thought, right idea. Um, and then Paul would come and say, the wages of sin is death. So what's the fruit of sin, the noun? Death. And so what is Jesus doing when he says, man, your sin is forgiven you? The death that has come upon your life is sent away from you by the power of God. That's what he's saying. And you know why those people were healed? Because they believe that was God with them. And they believe God can sin. God can divorce my life from the destruction that's come upon it. God can heal my flesh from all its diseases. God can do it. Right? They believe that. And thus they were healed. You know, we'd see more healings. Not that that's the goal. But we'd see more healings if people understood the forgiveness of sin like those guys in the first century did. People are so filled with this idea that sin is talking about their bad behavior. And that their bad behavior has caused God to despise them. And so they're not even thinking of what it means. God has divorced me from the destruction that's come upon my life. Hallelujah. That will heal you. You know what I live every day knowing? That God has divorced me from the destruction that's in this earth and the destruction that's come upon my life. You know what I think of every day? That God has sent the tribulation and the corruption that's in this world on account of lust. He has sent it away from me. He has caused it to pass over me. He has made me the temple of himself. I am the temple of the living God. And he cleansed my temple. He cleansed this temple by cleansing my heart, by cleansing his image in my sight so that I would call upon his name and invite him into this house. And now the Lord is dwelling with me in this house. And every day I think about how God has come to sup with me. And he is inside of me, causing the death and the destruction and the diseases in this earth to pass over me. And that will heal you. And if we prayed for people and we taught people in this name, that's the name of the Lord Jesus, we would find people being healed in their whole spirit, soul, and body. And we find them thinking the right thing. Right? Understanding what it meant. The forgiveness of sin. What Jesus meant. What he's talking about. Right? The divinity thing. That's why I bring up the divinity thing. I feel good to go back and touch on it so people don't confuse what I'm saying. We are the image of God. We are beautiful in the eyes of God. We are a treasure to God. 
You didn't sell everything you got to buy the field. God did. God bought the field by providing himself a land. Do you know why he bought the field? Because we're a treasure to God. He sees us as his children, right? When we talk about beholding your own glory, and if you'll just wake up to your divinity, then you, you, you'll have life. No, man, if you'll wake up to their God, the only immortal, and that he's the only one who has eternal life in himself. Jesus himself said, the, the Father has life in himself, and he's given that I would have that life in myself, and I'm here to serve you with that life. Right, So it's a fine line between understanding you're the image of God, but understanding that the likeness is something completely different. And the likeness talks about immortality. So yeah, is everybody beautiful to God? Absolutely. Is everybody cut from the rock? Absolutely. Is God the father of everything that lives and breathes and has breath in it? Absolutely. But the likeness of God cannot come upon a person unless they call God father. Right? It says all those who grab a hold of Jesus. Jesus said he didn't come to speak of himself. In the, same, in the same gospel, he said he came to reveal the Father. So all of those who grab a hold of what Jesus revealed about the Father, what does it say about all of those? They shall receive strength. To what? To become children of become God. Become the children of God. And that word become in the Greek means appear as the children of God. Appear yes. as what God has called them. God has called everybody his children. But if you don't call him Father then you ain't going to receive strength to overcome the death in the world and appear as his sons and daughters. Mm. There's something in the earth standing opposed to you appearing as the sons and daughters of God. And do you know who it is? That old dragon, Lucifer, Satan. He's standing opposed to man. He hates man. He was a murderer from the beginning. Who did he murder from the beginning? Man. You don't murder somebody unless you hate them. He hated man. He hated the thought that man would be sat at the right hand of God. He hated the thought that God himself promised man that they would be clothed in his same glory and immortality. And so he came to stand opposed to man. And you can't overcome the evil one by your own strength. The only way you can overcome the evil one is by the strength of God. Right? And so God revealed himself as your father in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you would grab a hold of God as the father of your life, as the only one who can father life and immortality in you, and that you would call upon his name. And then that would strengthen you. You would receive strength to overcome the evil one. That's why it says in Revelation, what does it say in Revelation? It says all those people, it says, and they overcame him. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Do you know what their testimony was? The Lamb. Do you know what the Lamb is? Abraham said, God will provide himself a Lamb. That will cause death to pass over us. So everyone who overcomes the evil one. Do you know how they overcome the evil one? God has provided himself a Lamb. He has caused death to pass over me. Just like the blood was over the doorpost in the Exodus. What was the blood over the doorpost declaring? The word of their testimony was the lamb God provided. And do you know what that did? That caused them to overcome the angel of death, the destroyer. The angel of death and the destroyer is Satan. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. Go read it. He calls the angel of death, the destroyer, Satan. How did those Hebrews overcome the destroyer? The blood of the lamb. They testified. God will provide himself a lamb. God will come and sup with us in our house. He will cause the angel of death to pass over me. 
That's how they overcame. Yeah. They received strength. Yeah. Amen. Right? Yeah. That's what it's talking about. That's the whole deal there. So that's why I'm drawing a line. There's a whole movement in the body of Christ in the world right now where they, they see that we're the image of God. They see that we're beautiful to God. But they think the power of life is found in you beholding your own glory. And there's a subtle, it's subtle. You know what it says about the serpent? Subtle. 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 There's a subtle twist that isn't recognizable to the carnal mind. Right? Of course I know that I'm glorious to God, but I promise you I don't wake up every day thinking of my glory. <laughs> <laughs> and if I wake up every day thinking of my own glory, if I wake up every day... Glory to Greg. Exactly. <laughs> if I wake up every day thinking I have life because I'm beautiful, I have life because I'm glorious, that's the wisdom in the world. Yes. That's what Lucifer said. I will be exalted unto life by beholding my own beauty? By beholding my own glory? No, that's not how I'm going to find life. Now, when the God Almighty clothes you in his glory, you can't say, my goodness, the glory of God is shining in me. But that ain't my glory that's shining, it's his glory. Yes. Right? Does that make sense? You guys understand the difference? Because we talk ad nauseum in here about we're beautiful to God, and we are. We talk ad nauseum about how we're a treasure to God, that we're the image of God. Right? But all those things can be true. And if you don't call upon his name, if you don't look to his glory, you can die just like the first man Adam did. Yeah. Adam was beautiful to God and he died. He was a treasure to God and he died. God thought he was beautiful and he died. He was loved by God Almighty and he died. Do you know why? Because he didn't see the glory of God. He needed to wake up to the glory of God. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil put his own glory right in front of his face. And do you know what that glory showed him? His nakedness. And immediately he was ashamed. And if you think you beholding your own glory and your own beauty is going to save you on the last day, when Lucifer comes to uncover your nakedness, you will perish. Right? You overcome him. By the word of our testimony. What is our testimony when Satan comes and points at the body of death? God has provided himself for him to cause that death to pass over me. You know what that's going to cause? Death to pass over me. Right? Does that make sense? We, yeah, we're not, we're not the creator, and we cannot produce glory apart from the one who is glory, who produces glory in us. That's right. But we're not the creator. It's a, the creator. it's a subtle thing. You, it's a subtle thing. I watched it happen. For so long, the body of Christ thought mankind was a worm. Mm-hmm. Right? That we're despicable. God despises us. A wretch. Because we adopted all this Augustine theology. Right. Around the 4th or 5th century. Right? And so there had to be a tearing up of that thought. And a restoration that God beholds beauty in man. Like when David said, who is man that you are mindful of him and you visit him? When I look out into the vast creation and I see all this beauty everywhere, what is it about man that makes you think of them? When you look at those words in the Hebrew, what is it about man that when they're gone, you miss them? What is it about man when their head isn't resting on your bosom that you don't like it? What is it about man that in spite of all this beauty you've made that your mind can't stop thinking of them? What is it about man? So we had to rip up all this this theology about man's a worm. God hates man. 
man, God despises man. And we had to establish the truth. But then what happened is the serpent comes in and twists that in and gets us turning the truth that we're beautiful to God into us worshiping the creation instead of the creator. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. We're not worshiping our own beauty. And the subtlety can be as simple as you got to walk in your identity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or you have to love yourself. Mm-hmm. Or you have to love yourself. I understand the sentiment there. I really do. That comes from people seeing that some of us, or lots of people in the earth, despise themselves. And so it's true. It's not right for you to despise yourself. It's not true for you to think that you're a worm. That's what the serpent wants you to think about yourself. So it's true that you shouldn't despise yourself. But listen, man, you cannot be delivered from that by loving yourself. Do you know how you can be delivered from despising yourself? By seeing God Almighty loves you. Right, And what will happen is, is when you really become filled with the fullness of the love of God, like Paul prayed, I pray that they understand. I pray that they be rooted and grounded in your love, that they might know the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of your love for them. Do you know what will happen when you really know the love of God? There's no more room for you to need love from anywhere else. I don't need love from my wife. I'm not trying to believe I'm good by how my wife loves me. I'm sorry. I know that trashes every doctrine in the earth about marriage. I can tell you it doesn't work. And do you know what do you, do you know what happens? You know what happens in that I'm not looking for love from my wife? When my wife is like a normal human that is having a bad time, that needs God herself, and she's not able to meet my needs, I don't despise her because of it. Because all the love that I need has come from God himself. And now I'm not busy even having thoughts of who loves me and who doesn't love me. I'm not having thoughts of I need to love myself. Loving yourself is you trying to deliver yourself from the negativity that's in the world by your own strength. Only the love of God for you can do that. The love of other people cannot save you from that. The love you have for yourself cannot save you from that. In fact, unless you completely deny yourself. Jesus wasn't busy loving himself. Jesus wasn't busy thinking I need to love myself. Jesus wasn't walking around telling people they need to love themselves. Jesus was walking around telling everybody about the love of the Father. And then he was manifesting it. Because he knew if these people's hearts can be filled with the love of God, there'll be no more room left for them to try and seek love from anywhere else. He knew that that's the answer. Right? Y'all remember the inner child? uh, Are y'all familiar with that? The inner child uh, philosophy is a uh, go back and uh, talk to your inner child and tell the inner child everything you've learned that will help the inner child heal itself and then you'll be healed. Basically, it's a self-love mm-hmm. therapy. Sure. And uh, it doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't work. <laughs> I love what Solomon said. I did that in college. And, and, and you know, it just leaves you empty. It just leaves you like, you know, you just took another turn in the maze. So it's the same yourself. thing with the father thing, right? That that you know you got to go back well your dad wasn't a great dad so you got to go back and you got to go through all of that crap Mm -hmm. that you were supposedly lived through and forgive him for all that and then you're going to be all better exact same exact same thing and you know what god would say through the lord jesus call no man on earth your father you want to be healed from your daddy issues recognize you were looking to your earthly father for something you could only get from the father of lights in heaven Mm -hmm. amen Mm -hmm. and you know what will happen your heart will immediately be delivered 
from all the fault you found with your earthly father because you'll let them off the hook. Your heart will let them off the hook. Your heart will realize my earthly father could never serve me with life. Only God in heaven can serve me with life. And then all the sin you imputed to your earthly father, every time they failed you, every time they failed to care for your life, every time they failed to provide for your needs, what will happen is, is you'll no longer be keeping an account of the wrongs they committed. Right. Because you only keep an account of the wrongs that have been committed against you if you're looking to people to behave properly to serve you with life. Or if you're looking at people thinking they can take life from you by how they behave. No one can take life from God. Whose life do you have? God's. Your earthly father can't give you a life that can't be taken from. Even should your earthly father have done everything perfectly. Couldn't fill you with peace and love and joy. Couldn't fill you with satisfaction. That's the world's philosophy. That's what the world says, right? Yes. That's how the world looks at it all. It's an interesting thing when Jesus says, call no man on earth your father. That's an interesting verse for people to contemplate and consider. Why did he say that? Listen, I love my dad. My dad's a great man. I call my dad, dad. So Jesus wasn't saying, don't let those words come out of your mouth, dad. He wasn't saying that. Don't look to anything else to father your life. That's right. Exactly. 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 It's the definition of father. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. It's good to be be honest. We don't realize the large majority of the offense in our life and the pain that we felt at the hands of people is because we were looking to them for things we could only get from God. And when they failed to be what we needed, it created transgression. And then we imputed that transgression to them. We kept a record of the wrong they committed against us. What does 1 Corinthians 13 say about love? Love keeps no record of the wrongs committed against it. Does John, what does John say about love in 1 John? God is love. God keeps no record of the wrongs committed against him. Why? I, it was a magical thing. I say magical, a powerful, supernatural thing. When God showed me the reason I was so upset with the people in my life that failed me is because I was looking to them for something I could only get from him. That was shocking when he said to me, Greg, you know why you're upset with those people for what they've done? You're upset that they can't be God. And I was like, what? But I stopped and thought, I didn't understand it fully, but I stopped and thought about it enough. And a a powerful thing happened inside of me where I didn't try not to keep a record of the wrongs committed against me. Immediately I saw that they couldn't give me what my life needed anyway. And what it did was it destroyed the record that my heart had been keeping. Mm -hmm. That wisdom destroyed it. Offense dwells in us. When we are looking to people to serve us with things only God can. Because the moment they fail, we're imputing sin to them. Yeah. Right? And, and what if, if we're never doing that, if we're never looking to people for what we can only get from God, guess what? We're not judging them yeah. by their actions. They can't we're not judging what they do as if it could add one cubit of stature to us. And we're not judging what they do as if it could take one cubit of stature to us. Jesus says, which of you supposes by taking thought of their own life can add one cubit of stature to it? Go ahead, Glenn. And that's the algorithm as far as human nature. 
offense dwells in us yeah. when we seek from people what only God can provide. So what does that mean? That means even when you're, one person cries, boo-hoo, boo-hoo, my parents argued in front of me and they damaged me, but offense dwells in me. Someone else will argue, boo-hoo, 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 my parents never argued in front of me. Now I don't know how to deal with conflict. Offense <laughs> dwells in me yeah. when I look to the hand of flesh and I will find some way to be offended by the good. Oh, that hurt me. Or by the bad, yeah. we will, offense dwells when we look to the earthly flesh. That's right. Yep. That's right. The knowledge of good and evil. Glory to God. We have to move the party into the other room. <laughs> 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 <laughs>